Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. where we shame us thoughts and feelings around all things sex, gynecology and female body judgment. We share honestly about our experiences so you can do the same, leading us all to better health, better sex and better lives. I'm Mika Simmons and today on The Happy Vagina I have the absolute insane honour of speaking to one of my new woman crushes, Emily Pine. Emily is an award-winning author of Notes to Self, a professor of modern drama at University College Dublin and writer in residence at the National Maternity Hospital. Emily. Hello, Mika. Hi, Emily. Hello, hello. How is your vagina today? It's pretty good, actually. It's kind of sunny outside, so I think my vagina responds well to sunshine. Oh, excellent, excellent. I like this. I like this. Are you naked? No, I'm not. No, that that would be good, wouldn't it? Well, I'm not sure that that would be good, but (laughs) I'm I'm not. I just, it's it's about equilibrium, really. Not to put you on too much of a pedestal, Emily, but I, I have got to be honest with you, your book did change my life. And um, male friends of mine have also told me that your book, Notes to Self, changed their life. It is one of the most heartfelt, honest, expansive memoirs that I think I've ever read. And I'm just so excited to talk to you about what you went through and really what you're doing today and how you're living your life really well. But before we do that, Emily, before we do that, we have got to do the Happy Vagina Quiz. Are you ready? um, It's scary, but yes. Okay. Question one. Jimi Hendrix pretended to be gay to get out of the army in 1962. My goodness, I've no idea. Um, Jimi Hendrix, I'm true. It is true. Isn't that awful? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, that that would be equivalent to having had TB or something, you know? It's terrible that, you know, conscription, having to go into the army, I'm pretty much against, but also needing to lie and choosing to lie to be gay. So not being allowed to be in the army because you're gay. I mean, there's just so much in there, isn't there? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, and it's, it's what's also interesting is the degree to which we now see that as crazy and how far we've come. And then you start to wonder what will be the equivalent? What will we look back on in, in a few, you know, 20, 30 years time and think, I can't believe how close minded we were. I can't believe how we thought that wasn't okay to be that way. You know? Oh, what a beautiful response. My girl crush just went up even higher. (laughs) Question two. In times of trouble, multiple studies have shown more girls are born than boys. Huh. An analysis has revealed that women naturally abort males in miscarriage. Mm, false. It is true. Oh, wow. I know. Biologists have long thought that women spontaneously abort male fetuses that are frail, making room for new pregnancies and possibly a healthier baby. The more women that are born, the more we can procreate. That's bizarre, isn't it? It's funny. I mean, I'm sure that study is underpinned by decades of medical research. I'm always slightly wary of the of the evolutionary kind of ideas behind how those things work. And and I suppose as someone who couldn't have children and but who ha- did have miscarriages, the 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 there's always that fear you think oh what was there a reason you know what was what what was underlying that and then sometimes those those kind of rationales come in and doesn't help with the self blame you know yeah that's a really good point this was actually came out of a university uh, of berkeley study and um 
they went on to say that females are thought to have a better chance of reproducing than males in tough times. So abortion doesn't make as much evolutionary sense. And I, listen, it's a big topic and uh, very poignant for us. But I also, I take a little comfort from this uh, evolutionary kind of respect of all things woman. I know, I know, I know. There is always that thing, you know, if you, if you want to see resilience and toughness, look at the people who bleed every month, you know? Yes, thank you so much. And we shall leave that question there. Question number three. Since 1937, despite growing calls for an update, Article 41.2 of the Irish Constitution has stated that economic necessity should not force mothers to return to work and neglect their duties in the home, I quote. Last year, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission said that the phrase should be abolished or changed. Yes, they should said that it should be abolished or changed um, and that constitutional article still remains in place. Just the whole concept of, of a woman not going back to work because her home duties are more important is, is, is fascinating. It's interesting as well in that particular article, at one point it uses the term mothers and at other points it uses the term women. And it is a conflation of the two. So there, there is no way of imagining in the constitution a woman who is not also a mother. Wow. Which I suppose in a country that where abortion was banned makes sense because there was absolutely no support for a woman who thought she might not want to be a mother. Absolutely. And and also in a country where divorce was also banned until 1995. So, you know, the way in which family only meant one thing and, and that family meant that women, and, and a lot of them wanted to work in the home. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, it's a strange thing because the, it doesn't, in some ways it doesn't have any effect on your daily life because it's not like I consult the constitution to see what I should be doing with uh, with my life or my work or my family. And yet at the same time, it also gives you an idea of how people are imagined. And as a result, the kind of limits there are on you, what's possible for you to do or not. Mm. Mm. I think it's good. It's good that it should either be changed or abolished. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a real... I was very surprised when they... Um, when there was opposition from women's groups about abolishing it, because I thought, well, surely you just delete it from the constitution. But actually a lot of women say that it's the only kind of recognition that women who work as carers in the home um, get, and that, that that recognition is really, really important in terms of their status. So it's, I always think it's interesting when issues like this come up, because you realise that your own point of view is not the only right one, that there that there are multiple ways of of what women want to do with their lives and how they want to be seen and described. And for a lot of women actually being described as in the home works actually to recognize what they are doing with their lives. Mm. So it's about the nuances actually. And, and we are in a period politically of deconstruction where we're just kind of untangling stuff so that people get to be recognized no matter what their choice is. Yes. that and. And also that we have we have ways of recognizing and enabling people that are elastic enough to allow for change. Mm. And, you know, those things are changing in Ireland and it's really positive and it makes me really hopeful for the the kindness, I think, and sense of sharing that is now evident. When people voted in the abortion referendum a couple of years ago, they did so not necessarily because those were decisions they wanted to make in their lives, but because they wanted to leave it open or possible for other women to make those decisions in their own lives. So it's the ultimate choice. I know Laura Whitmore, when she came on the podcast in season one, was talking about the um, Be My Yes movement, which I thought was really powerful at the time. She asked her, her the male, the men in her family to vote for her, especially because she couldn't vote because she'd been living in the UK for a while. And that for sense of solidarity, I think, is really important. Yeah. And just, just choice. All the nuances is choice. Brilliant. You got that question right. Yeah, I got one right. <laughs> question four, same-sex marriage is illegal in Ireland. Oh, no, it's legal. Yay. It is so legal. 
Do you remember that happening? Oh, absolutely. Again, you know, I was part of both referenda campaigns and just that vote. And actually, the the biggest feeling of it wasn't even on the day when it was it was kind of overwhelming when the result came in. Um, but the next day when I woke up and I thought, oh, I live in a different country now in a really good way. You know, in a in a way that I thought, oh, this is the country I want to to live in, and it was a strange thing that I was in I was in the city centre the next day, and I was walking down the street, and I saw a same sex couple holding hands, and I thought, oh, I don't know that they would have done that yesterday. Now I'm speculating about people I don't even know, but that sense of togetherness and openness, and it made me, you know, straight white middle class woman. It made who has all of the advantages. It made me feel more hopeful. So I hope it makes everybody feel more hopeful. Oh, it just literally brought a tear to my eye hearing that story because what that referendum did was gave the privilege of freedom to human beings that hadn't had it for a really long time. It shouldn't be a privilege, but actually it is. Freedom is a privilege. It is. And I remember the same feeling after the abortion referendum passed and feeling that women were equal citizens for the first time in my lifetime. Mm. Mm. That they really had choice at the deepest level. Yes, exactly. Last question. Sanitary pads are plastic free? False. It is false. The average sanitary pad is made up of 90% plastic which is the equivalent of the use of four single carrier bags. See, I knew that, but I did. I wouldn't have guessed 90%. That's extraordinary. 90%. Tampons are just as bad. Their applicators are commonly coated in plastic and they're non-recyclable. And the average user, Emily, goes through 11,000 pads or tampons in a lifetime. Wow. That's quite I have the one, I have one word. Actually, I have two words. Menstrual cup. <laughs> and I, and no, I'm just going to say they are plastic as well, right? But aren't they? They're true, but they're not. But you don't have to get rid of them. No, you, you don't. Them. No, you don't. Reusable all the way. Emily, you got four out of five, but I'm going to give you five out of five because I messed up with quiz scoring. <laughs> I think that's amazing. I did, I did very well. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Five quick fire questions for you. Emily, brief or G-string? Brief. Any reason why? Big briefs. In fact, I'm quite evangelical about this. The bigger the pant, the better. And size up. Men have been doing it for years. Tie your underwear. Just, I mean, what a what a terrible thing to do to ourselves. <laughs> Seriously, I moved to bigger pants and baggier pants and I have never been happier. I'm sort of there with you as well. I'm, I'm a bit frightened it might be an age thing. We might be showing our age. <laughs> I'm, I'm in, I'm in. I'm currently like mainlining stripe and stairs, organic knickers. They're amazing. Question two, Brazilian or bush? Bush. Come on. Do we want to make the most important part of our bodies put it in pain? Don't think so. Okay, got you. I've got you. I mean, listen, I'm rocking a bush at the moment due to lockdown, but sometimes I do like to do a bit of a trim, but each to their own. This is the glorious thing. Question three, clitoral or G-spot? Both? Can you go both? Both and both at the same time, I've <laughs> recently discovered. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, this is this is one of the joys of our lives, right? We're not we're not stuck with one. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, there are a plethora of ways that you can have an orgasm as well. I've recently learned through the book that I'm writing that you can have I've not had one, just to be super clear, a sleeping orgasm. As in while you're asleep. Oh, can you imagine? Divine, no? I have woken up for some very good sex dreams feeling pretty good. So, yeah. Who knows? Who knows what happened in that in that, that moment for you? Question four, tampon or menstrual cup? Oh, well, kind of nothing really anymore. But um, no, it would always have been tampon. Sorry, I'm thinking of the plastic now but and feeling bad. But yeah, let's be honest. <laughs> Have you moved completely through your periods now? No, I haven't really, but it's just so nothingy that, you know, it, it doesn't uh, 
You don't need anything. Yeah, I don't really need anything. And and these are the things that, you know, we don't really talk about um, that much because it's a bit gross or all, all the other words that are appended to women's bodies and functions. But, um, you know, I get a, I have a much shorter cycle. So we're mm-hmm. talking like every 19 or 20 days, again, which totally surprised me. Um, but but then as a result, just kind of doesn't really doesn't really do much. I've got that to look forward to. Can't wait. Not so much looking forward to the hot flushes, but um, there's certainly some things about menopause that I'm excited by. There are there are things that are very good. You know, there is that. I mean, not having to carry around a menstrual cup or loads of Tampax or whatever. You know, just just feeling like okay, maybe this does mean the the beginning of a different kind of freedom. A different kind of freedom and a life of one's own. <gasps> I'm so excited for the rest of the podcast. Last question. Vibrator or no vibrator? I'm going to say that one is a private one. Okay, good. So I think, and this is, it's funny because when you were, t- when you and I have been having conversations or when you were talking about um, the book that I wrote notes to self, how kind of no holds barred it was and how I talk about everything. And yet I still think some elements of privacy are really important. And there are things where we have to say, I don't want to talk about that publicly or I, that, that, and not in a shame way, really not in a shame way, but in terms of, and this is why I'm talking about it because I'm not ashamed at all, but in terms of, no, that is for me. That is my private truth. And I think that's really important that women own that. Emily, if we were in the same room, I would be sat on your lap giving you a hug. Social distancing, Mika. (laughs) (laughs) I love you for saying that. Thank you for your honesty. And it's a really good time for us to move on to some slightly more personal subjects for you. Because your book, Notes to Self, had this phenomenal quality to it, Emily, where, as you've just referenced... It was unbelievably intimate and open and at the same time, incredibly spacious. So as I referenced at the beginning of the podcast, anybody could find themselves in it. And I would suggest that any of our listeners that went and read it from whatever walk of life will be able to find themselves within your book. And I just wondered when you were writing it, did you know that's what you were doing? It would be great to say, yes, I did, but I did so much of it based on instinct and out of a deep sense of personal need. Um, I mean, there, there is that kind of twist in the title, you know, notes to self. And people say, was it really? Did you really write it for yourself? And I think, honestly, I did. And when I say that, I mean that it was a, a series of stories about my life from, you know, sexual violence to... Um, my dad being an alcoholic to my parents splitting up when I was young um, to, you know, in my thirties and forties dealing with infertility and miscarriage and so on. Oh, it's where it sounds like a joyful read, doesn't it? Um, I promise you there is joy in it too, (laughs) because it's important to own our joy and, and, and those experiences as well. But I needed to get it down on paper. And when I was writing it, I kept saying to my partner, no one else is going to want to read this. I can't imagine anyone, he would say that you cannot think about that. All you can think about is your relationship to the page and putting down the words that are important to you, which is such good advice. And I'm really glad that I, that I followed it, that I listened to him. And I think that's, that's where the, I'm not trying to tell anybody what to think about my life or about their own lives. And I'm not, especially I'm not telling people how to feel. And I like books that do that. I like books that just say things matter of factly and leave you to have your own emotional and intellectual reactions. And so I think by instinct, I I made that kind of book as Mm. opposed to doing it according to a plan. Mm. And one of the things that I would say within it that is so identifiable to all of us, and, and as I've said, was my story too, was that you were a young person in pain. I, I would pontificate that the reason you were in pain is because there was some some neglect uh, in the family home and then some school experiences and the way that you managed your pain 
was by checking out, acting out, and um, you know, leaving yourself, Emily. You lost yourself for a period of time. That's what I got from your book, and I don't know another human being that hasn't had some lost years. Yeah, and and I say it in the book, and it's it's something I really increasingly believe that I did not when I was a teenager. I did not have the language. I could not have said, and I mean, I'm not talking about sophisticated language. I could not have said, I am lonely, or I am incredibly sad, or I couldn't even have said, I feel lost. So instead, I acted it out through my body. And I think that's an incredibly common experience. And the strange thing is that I don't, It that was very particular to when I was a teenager and I was drinking a lot and taking drugs and, um, and having sex and not in good ways. And, but I, so I, I, did, I stopped doing that. I, I, you know, got better in my twenties and thirties and so on, but I still think we get lost mm-hmm. and I still think we struggle to find the language for it. And that's why sometimes reading someone else's words can be a way of connecting to our own feelings because we mm. see their their language and think, oh, that does or it doesn't work for me or apply for me. And, and that sense of not being able to express what we are really feeling or what is really wrong with us or what is really right with us is, is a real, is the biggest stumbling block, I think, for so many of us. Especially for our, for our generation and before us, Emily, I think the ones that are coming through now are having a tiny bit of a different experience. And as we've talked about at the beginning of this podcast and the quiz, Ireland's a very different place today. But I wonder in your teens whether or not you had anyone to talk to about sex or how I didn't or how you might enter into a relationship with a man. No, I mean, it's a very short answer. And I would have been mortified had anyone tried to. And uh, I mean, one thing I will point out is that I actually went to secondary school from 14 to 18, living in London. So it's by no means restricted to Ireland. And and in fact, I I was at an event in France last year and I said to them, well, you know, you, you're also sexually liberated. And I meant it as a joke. And there was this kind of freezing cold silence in the hall. And then afterwards, many women came up to me after and, and talked about their very negative experiences. And it's interesting the kind of assumptions we make about different people being, you know, free or or able to talk about things. And actually, I think we just all suffer from this great difficulty. And, it, it, you know, obviously, I'm in my 40s now, so I can't really talk about people who are, who actually the, teenage, the teenagers and 20-somethings who I'm mostly teaching in university. I see that they have so many more platforms for talking about things. And I see that there is so much more information and so much more explicit content out there. And yet I simultaneously see the same fear of being the one who's different or being the one whose experiences are not valued and and being the, and the same problem with not being able to use their voices. And so we can never stop, I think, first of all, setting an example, which sounds very teacherly, but I really mean it. I really mean what we do and how we talk about ourselves models it for other people, whether they are our age, older or younger. And then we can never stop actually trying to be teachers as well, to say to other people, here are the words, use them if you want. And, and you know, I, I always say not most people are not mad enough to write and then publish a memoir. But writing is a really great way of of getting words out of your brain and and onto paper and, and as a result being able to look at them. So I, yeah, and, and I don't mean writing on Twitter and Instagram, mm-hmm. though as wonderful as those formats can be for people um, to reach out and find a community. But I really mean that self-expression is about the self first and foremost. Mm, and I think that on Twitter and all those other social media platforms, we still have a desire to be liked. And what I just heard in what you said was that underlying so much of our nature as human beings is a deep rooted fear of not being liked and loved. I don't know where it comes from because I don't know any human being. It is part of the human condition. 
I think that's so well put. It's exactly right. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. But you, you did find the person who you wanted to have a life with. And then, as you talk about so clearly in your book, you were very challenged trying to get pregnant. And I know you've spoken about it a lot. I do want to ask you if there was a moment, Emily, that you decided to let go and to no longer try anymore. I know you, you've, you've mentioned to me privately that you, haven't, you decided not, not to have IVF. And that's a moment in itself. I did the same. I decided not to freeze my eggs, looking at all the reasons why I should and shouldn't. And I just wondered if spiritually there was a moment when you went, you know what, I'm going to choose a life of my own. You know, I think it's really a composite series of moments. Um, And um, my sister's daughter was was stillborn um, a couple of weeks before she was due. So she was almost full term. And when we lost Elena, that changed so much because, because it, it became about, and I found it very difficult to talk about Elena. And it's really important to talk about her because she existed and is such a big part of our lives. But it became about the love that we had and that we could have. And that was one of the the things that my partner and I felt was that in we spent three and a half years trying to have children and trying to become parents rather. And, and at the end of it, it was important for us to say, to, to say to each other and I guess to the world in a strange way, this love that we have, we are a family without a baby. And to live our lives. And so there are these kind of little crystalline moments when we had conversations where we said, okay, let's, let's see how it goes. Let's, uh, let's not do IVF and, and see how we are with, with that. And, and then, you know, you find yourself looking up and it's one year or two years later and you realize that your life is happy. I say you, when I mean me, the kind of classic distancing technique, Okay, you can include me in that if you'd like to. Yeah, you know, and you you realise that your life is happy and that is not nothing. And so much of the the kind of compulsion that I had and, you know, I really, I deeply, I deeply miss not having become a mother. But that compulsion was really eroding my sense of happiness in myself. Like I couldn't be enough and I have issues with the phrase I am enough because I'm more than enough actually um but that that the that the happiness that I could have and this life of my own couldn't be fulfilling it seems to me now such a destructive myth this myth of compulsory maternity and we don't have to buy into it and and I feel sometimes I feel guilty uh, for saying that kind of thing, because guilt is a really hard thing to get rid of entirely, because I wanted so much to be a mom, and I don't underestimate the pain or want to suggest that I don't still grieve, because I do. You just 
learn how to carry that grief. And in learning how to carry it, you also learn how to be happy again. And like grief, it, it fades and, and you, you recognize the, the good. And there are days, and I never thought that I would say this, but there are days I look at my life and I think I am happier now than I would have been had I become a mother. Mm. And, and I know, and almost not never talked about, but I know women who have thought that themselves and they mm. have, they are mothers. Mm. Me too. You know, and, and one of the reasons why I want to talk about it, even though it's not, I mean, it's not an emotional picnic becoming the professionally infertile woman. Um, the, one of the reasons why I think I want to talk about it, why it's important to talk about it is because even a few years ago, I didn't feel, I don't feel these conversations were really happening. Mm. I was looking around going, am I going to be happy if I, if I don't have kids? And there didn't seem to be many voices coming back with an affirmative, mm. you know? And, and I, and I think, you know, I can't believe it's the 21st century and we're still talking about how using this phrase, women don't have to become mothers to be happy. And even, you know, and you and I have talked about this in our, in our off air conversations where then that's constantly putting it in the negative, mm. like that I'm a not mother, you know, therefore, you know, and I am happy. And um, whereas maybe we could just say, be who you are and how, how that is and who that is should allow you to be happy. But- I agree. One of the, one of the, the new definitions over the past few years has been about being child free and our generation, Emily, the statistics of women who are being child free are higher than ever before. We had a freedom. We've been gifted a freedom and choice much more, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, than than generations before us, politically, in terms of our bodies and our choice. But even (laughs) child-free suggests that somehow or other the child is the statistic that we should all be looking for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it also suggests... I don't know, some kind of, like I have freed myself from the bonds of children and, and I don't feel that either. And so I, you know, I, I don't know. Hi, I'm, I'm Emily and, and I'm a writer and an academic and a sister and an aunt and a daughter and a partner and a friend and many other things. And, mm. and there isn't a single label that can mm. encompass that. Mm, beautiful. And also one of the things that I'm really picking up on what you're saying is, that we have the full gauntlet of emotions around it in the same way that anyone does about anything huge in one's life. Any decision you make, any emotional decision you make, if you decide to leave a partner, that partner's, the grief that you have around leaving that partner will go through many, many, many different experiences. And sometimes within a day, I can have the full gauntlet of emotions around not having children biologically myself, from absolute ecstaticness to have this freedom to do exactly what I want in an incredibly selfish way, through to being on the floor and, and being shocked. Sometimes I feel shocked <laughs> that that somehow this has happened. But, but most importantly, the thing I hold on to like an Oscar, is that this has been my choice. These are our choices. We are not victims. And even if the choices came 10 years ago, even if the choices actually started in our teens, this is our choice. This is the choice. This is the life that we are meant to be living. Thank you so much for saying that and for saying it how you did, because it, you know, it's so true. I've, I mean, from where you started talking about the just the range of emotion, I think so often we're expected to just say, yes, this is good or this is bad and nothing in between. And we're not allowed to have these contradictory emotions, but we do. And, and because we're not allowed to have them, because we're meant to have a single message, you just, you push down the contradictions and they fester inside and makes it harder. And it's totally true. And the, the point about choice, and it's such, it's such a powerful word. Because for a really long time, I felt like I didn't have a choice, 
that I was just accepting things. And that takes all of the power away from you as a person, as an individual with a body, with a mind, you know. And the days when I feel good about my life are the days when I say to myself, oh, I choose this life. I choose this life. I choose to be happy in this life. And there are lots of kind of contextual things that I can't control, but I will control the things I can. And and part of that is how I decide to frame this. And it sounds like such a kind of um, small tool, and yet it's so huge to mm. say, I will choose what my attitude to this is. Well, it's, 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 it's actually, for me, uh, often on a knife edge to whether or not I sit in self-pity and victim mentality, not just on this subject, but in so many areas of my life when things aren't unfolding how I dreamt, imagined, expected. Expectations are a big one, aren't they? <laughs> Terrible thing, expectations. But, you know, just, just to move away from any kind of victim, this has happened to me, to it may not have been a conscious choice, but this is my choice. And it's so empowering if you can sit in that. It is. And actually, often it is a conscious choice. And I do. I mean, I mean, quite apart from <laughs> quite apart from babies and bodies, I do it in relation to work all the time. I say, oh, I have to do this. And there are two things that help me with that. And the first is that sometimes, I mean, not at the moment, obviously, but sometimes the thing that I had to do was get on a plane and go to a conference or, you know, give a lecture to a big group of people. And I would find it scary and hard and it required a lot of work. So I had this like, oh, I have to do this uh, attitude to it. And again, my boyfriend would say, or think of it this way, you get to do this. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And it's such, it's just this tiny shift and it, and it, it meant, meant so much to me. And mm. that I get to do this. I get mm. to be this way um, mm. as opposed to this is an obligation. And, mm. the, and, and in terms of work, you know, I have to do this. Actually, if I didn't want to do it, I wouldn't do it. I mean, I'm very, very lucky to have the kind of job that I can make decisions about, you know, what I get to do and what I want to do with my time. Um, but, but again, to own those decisions and rather than to relegate them to the world of acceptance or somebody else gets to make decisions about my life. Yes. In lots of cases and lots of ways, you know, decisions are made about my life by referenda, for example. Um, but in lots of ways, we actually have more power and more control than sometimes I think we, and I say we, and I mean me, really, <laughs> um, then then I am I'm willing to take. Because if you take control, then you have to accept the consequences. And you also have to have to look at things like expectations, which are often other people's, but are often actually also your own. You have to be prepared to look at those expectations and say yes or no to them. And that's scary too. I have a couple of things to say to that. And one is that you're not very lucky to have the career that you've got, Emily. You are super talented. Just, uh, <laughs> Actually, even mm -hmm. as I said that, I was thinking, I'm not lucky. I worked my ass off yeah. um, <laughs> very <laughs> deliberately for, you know, 20 years now. So, okay. Mika's not going to let that one go. <laughs> and then the other thing that I've got to say on it is that your boyfriend sounds great. Does he have a brother? <laughs> he, he has an unavailable brother um but yeah he is great he is great and and but it's funny because I said it to him recently about some piece of advice he'd give me I said oh that was really useful and he said god it's so much easier to solve problems in other people's lives isn't it mm -hmm. which is so true we're all we're all experts at what other people should do but no he is uh, he I think he's kind of the opposite in me I shouldn't really talk about him because he's his own person but um in many ways, I'm a I, very instinctive person who makes decisions very quickly. Um, and he's a much more considered kind of quiet, slow person. And that has been... It's a good balance. It is a good balance. It's a good balance. And to be honest with you, you're one of my favourite topics. I'm really happy not to talk about him. <laughs> <laughs> you're one 
moving on to today, Emily, when we first had a chat about you coming on the podcast, I was like, you know, thinking about what subjects we'd look at. And then you told me that you were now the writer in residence at the National Maternity Hospital. And I felt like I'd hit the jackpot because obviously Ireland has a huge history around pregnancy, maternity, abortion. We've talked about some of the issues around it and how women are only perceived as as baby makers What's it like for you working there? So it was, I mean, in a couple of different ways, it has been challenging and rewarding in equal measure. So how did it come about, Emily? Again, when I, you know, I'm an, I'm an instinctive person, as I think I've said about a hundred times. And I just had this feeling um, and response to the hundreds of people that I talked to about their own pregnancy issues whether that was loss um or difficulty or joy and that that I wasn't quite done with the story and so it transpired through kind of a couple of conversations with the master of the hospital um professor hickens that he invited me to become writer in residence there and and then I started kind of going in and meeting staff and patients and um and and really talking a lot to staff about the ways in which they were offering and supporting women through their healthcare and thinking about reproductive health in much larger ways than just baby making. So thinking that even, you know, we I, so often I had thought of the reproductive system as purely being about producing babies. I think you alerted me to this. One of the only times that we're ever invited to talk about our gynecological health or our reproductive health is when there's something wrong or to do with pregnancy. Yeah. Other other than that, it's just supposed to function and kind of in the background somewhere. But, you know, you have a reproductive health system that that will work your entire life in your body. Mm. And that's amazing to me to think of it. It, it just... It kind of again it reframes things as as being about just not the years. I mean, I think childbearing is a a terrible phrase, um, but childbearing years are defined as something like fifteen to forty five or something. I mean, you know, obviously childbearing happens outside of those years, and mm-hmm. and issues happen within those years that affect women. Nothing to do with pregnancy. So the just 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 thinking of it as. In, outside of the terms in which it's usually referenced and realising that, uh, I mean, also realising so much about the underfunding of the sector, about the way in which women's bodies have been legislated. So the hospital is now um, one of the centres that women can um, obtain terminations of pregnancy and thinking about one building. Wow. wow. Yeah, right. one one building that and there was, that was a very deliberate decision to so because if if they were those services were put in clinics, those clinics would be targeted in a way that a that hospitals can't be. Um, so that's a political decision. Really interesting to hear you talk about how women's health is essentially kind of I suggest deprioritized, Emily. What do you think needs to happen to change the landscape? What would you suggest that your role at the maternity hospital is in terms of changing the landscape? Well, I think the role of any writer is always storytelling. And I think that is one part of changing attitudes towards women's health. And, it, you know, if you look at the medical scandals around poor health care over the past 50 years, they have predominantly been around women's bodies and women's reproductive bodies. Um, from cervical um, cancer uh, not being detected or informed victims being informed of it um, to symphysiotomy, um, which was a scandal particularly uh, connected to the Catholic Church and the refusal to give women C-sections. Um, Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, C-sections limited the number of children women could have. And so the Catholic Church were against this. Oh! <gasps> So women were cut open instead, their vaginas were cut open instead, or their pelvises were, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, dislocated, leaving them with really long-term health issues. I mean, unable to walk in some cases. 
And those women have still not been properly compensated. And in fact, there's still a row over their medical records being destroyed. So the, the, and I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, this century or or whatever, but we are talking about women who are still very, very much alive. Um, And so those, they, those scandals really attach so much to, to women's bodies and, and silently for so long. And so it is one of the things that writers can do is to talk about them and to find a way to tell the story that can, that can help. And, and part of that is, is educating medical staff on, on how to listen to women. And I, I was reading an interesting thing about um, the endometriosis is obviously an issue that happens to so many women and goes undiagnosed that uh, there was a, a journal um, called, I think, Fertility and Sterility that for seven years had, uh, and they just retracted it now, but for seven years had an article um, as part of the journal uh, rating women's attractiveness and linking that to endometriosis. So a male panel of doctors rating women's physical external attractiveness and claiming that this had something to do with the internal working of their bodies. I'm literally speechless at some of the things that you're telling me. Are you writing these stories, Emily, at the maternity hospital just to really understand? I know that one of the things that you do is talk to women, talk to men and women, to couples who are going through that experience in their lives. But some of this old historical um some of the old historical stories that you've just mentioned and then this astonishing astonishing statistic around men looking at women's physicality to try and work out if that's the cause of the endometriosis are you writing these stories emily can we have a book about this <laughs> you know there there are some there's some really great medical humanity books out there um my Dusenbury has a great book called doing harm um i am there is a field of people writing about this and i am at the beginning of it i would really like to find a way of writing this story that feels both personal and political in the broadest terms. So finding a way to humanize the story and make it not really about statistics. And one of the things that was uh, written about this endometriosis um, article scandal was that this is what happens when research happens about women rather than for women. And I think that that is, is something to take to heart and to think about how do we, how do I write, how do other writers write how do culture makers make culture for women rather than just about them? Well, a good starting point is that it's written by women and that the research should be being done by women. Yeah, I mean, I think some of my favourite feminists are men. Um, so, And I think I have encountered more than one female patriarch in my time. Um, so again, I, I, I don't like to kind of reduce a lot of it to, to gender essentialism um some you know so many men are really caring and i hate the way society tells them that they should be less caring or that they shouldn't express what are seen as traditionally feminine attributes like listening mm-hmm. or being careful um mm-hmm. so i i really think there should be we should be talking about the principles of mm-hmm. healthcare uh, and 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 joining it up right not seeing it as as this little bubble over here and I, I was talking to one doctor who runs actually the menopause clinic and I asked her what she, what she thought the issues were in women's healthcare. And she said she doesn't really see, she doesn't really think of it in terms of women's healthcare. She thinks of healthcare. And while I think there is a real advantage to spotlighting women's healthcare issues, I also, I find that extraordinary as a statement. It kind of took me a while to adjust to it. Because I reacted quite strongly against it at first. I was like, well, of course it's women's healthcare. And then I thought, oh, well, what if we just thought of it as healthcare? Mm. What, mm. Would that kind of equality actually lead to real equality as mm. opposed to maternity hospitals? This, what, what you're talking about, this deprioritization, because it is women's healthcare that tends to be underfunded. 
Mm. And it's the, those are the first programs that get cut in um, austerity times. And, you know, so what if we, what if it just became healthcare? I just completely blown away by that suggestion. And I feel really inspired by the idea that rather than take away the research or the writing around women's experiences from men and give them solely to women, that we should be living in a fully integrated society where we actually just respect humanity and stop the divisiveness within it having a deep respect for difference yes exactly different but equal emily i'm really sad to say that we've run out of time i know i knew that this would happen because we would just chat the whole time (laughs) i've absolutely loved speaking with you today and we are going to end with one question i have recently found out that there is a word for vagina in irish it's fagan i don't know if i'm saying that right f-a-i-g-h-a-n sounds good to me and i would like to ask you emily what would your fagan say to you today if it could it would say buy me an ice cream i think because of the sunshine a very visual person I've got all sorts of- <laughs> I've never met IRL I've got visions of you with an, with an ice cream on your vagina <laughs> the rest of my day is when it's either ruined or inspired I don't know I'll let you know <laughs> well we should always listen to our vaginas so yeah I'm gonna go get that ice cream and you can imagine what I do with it <laughs> Okay, fantastic. Emily, thank you so much for your time. I've loved having you on The Happy Vagina. And please go and write more because you are just absolutely phenomenal, heart-opening, open-minded human being. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm-hmm. 